Grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Our text for our sermon is Acts chapter 5, verses 12 and 17 through 32. Many signs and wonders were done among the people through the hands of the apostles. With one mind, they all continued meeting in Solomon's colonnade. The high priest rose up along with his associates, that is, the party of the Sadducees, because they were filled with envy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the prison, brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and keep on telling the people the whole message about this life. After they heard this, they entered the temple courts at daybreak and began to teach. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, that is, the whole council of elders of the people of Israel. Then they sent orders to the jail to have the apostles brought in. But when the officers arrived, they did not find them in prison. They returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. When the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were puzzled about them, wondering what could have happened. Then someone came and reported to them, Look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple courts and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought the apostles in without force because they were afraid that the people might stone them. After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin. The high priest asked them, did we not give you strict orders not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you are determined to bring this man's blood down on us. But Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you arrested and killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his right hand as prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there's a particular kind of comedy that is very popular, and I have to admit, the older I get, the less I like it. I can't stand it anymore. The basic gist of it is, a person, the main character, tells one little white lie. And it's usually in these comedies, it's, it's to try to impress uh, meeting his soon-to-be in-laws or whatever. And then the little white lie starts to get discovered, so they tell just a slightly bigger white lie to cover it up, and then a full-on lie, and then a bigger lie, and it finally all falls apart on them, and it's a catastrophe. Any more of these drive me nuts, because I've learned in life. It's easiest just to tell the truth. You, then you don't have to keep up with the lies. And if the person would just confess, I told a white lie, I'm sorry, I was trying to impress you, it would end the whole thing. But then there wouldn't be a movie. Well, it's almost comedic. We know the Sanhedrin, two weeks to two months before Good Friday, had plotted the murder of Jesus. And they end up working it out, even though Pilate tries to stop the whole thing, and then, in today's text, it's well after Pentecost Sunday, there are at least 5,000 Christians in Jerusalem, and in a comedic way, even though it's not so funny, we can laugh at their folly that they're still trying to lie about the resurrection. But in today's text, we see He is risen, and that's a message that cannot be silenced. And God had that recorded for you. So you can be confident by your God-given faith that Jesus is risen. 
And so our text begins in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders kept on occurring among the people through the hands of the apostles. And everybody was by common consent in Solomon's colonnade. The gate, the main gate to the temple was on the east side. And the, and the temple had layers. So the very first layer was actually an outer wall. And then when you went in that, there was, for example, the court of the women, the court of the Gentiles, till you get to the holiest of holies where only the high priest could enter. But that east side, part of that gate was actually this huge colonnade that was called Solomon's Colonnade. And it seems you could fit 5,000 people in there. And what a beauty it is to meet at the temple because God designed the temple to be an object lesson about his presence among us and the mystical union because Christ would take on our human flesh. He would be the sacrifice for all the sins of the world. He would rise victorious and unite us to himself so that God would ever be with us. So the temple was the perfect object lesson and the New Testament has not been written yet. It's a good 30 years away. So what they have is the Old Testament and the temple. And they're showing the people how this all connects to Christ. But God wants them to understand that this is what it's all about and that the apostles have the true message. So he gives them the ability to do signs and wonders, miracles, to confirm to people that they're the one, that's the message God is blessing. Not the message of the Sanhedrin. The temple doesn't need any more sacrifices, even though they're still going on. They're pointless because Christ, the Lamb of God, has risen. Now, you and I may wish, boy, wouldn't that help our church if we could do miracles? Wouldn't that help get the gospel out? We miss the true miracle if we think that way. God has inspired the apostles and the evangelists and we have the New Testament and the Holy Spirit promises he works through that. So we don't need those miracles anymore. We proclaim the good news that he's risen and that that is a message that cannot be silenced and that his resurrection means our sins are paid for in full. But then we get to verse 17. Then the high priest rose up and all those with him who were of the sect of the Sadducees and they were filled with resentment. These guys are getting all the attention. Now the apostles, it wasn't about them. It was about the resurrection. But they're doing the miracles and the people are paying attention. And so they they literally seized them. They manhandled the apostles and put them in custody into a public jail. Our brothers and sisters in Christ... There were times in Christian history when the Christians hid themselves in the catacombs where the Gentiles would be afraid to meet because they're afraid of the ghosts of their ancestors and spooks, but they knew they were okay. So, so the message seemed to go underground. But even then, when they were arrested and they were hauled like into Circus Maximus, then they boldly proclaimed. So right now, the apostles sitting in prison would have to be scratching their heads and say, do we still meet at the temple? Do we boldly proclaim? Or should we go to a different part of Israel? Then an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the prison during the night, led them out and said, get going, take a stand and keep on speaking in the temple to the people. All there is to proclaim about this life. When they heard this, they went into the temple around daybreak and they began teaching. Big, interesting way the angel puts it. A special messenger sent from God that would give them the encouragement, do this boldly. But he doesn't just say preach about the resurrection. He says to uh, tell all the people that what there is to tell about this life. 
Now, I often hear people who are unbelievers think they're so clever when they say, and they don't just mean Christianity, when they say, religion is just fairy tales you tell children so they can cope with grandma's death. And that shows that they are completely ignorant of all history. Oh, yes, when you think of the Egyptians, you think of an elaborate afterlife because that's what got preserved. But don't kid yourself. It was mostly, most religions were about everyday life. Even the Egyptians, they had gods for the Nile River, which was without its water, they were in trouble. And for example, we read in the Bible that the Canaanites, they had Baal, the god of rain. That wasn't so much about the afterlife. That was about getting rain so that you could grow your crops and live now. We hear, for example, of Jacob, whose father-in-law Laban had household gods. Those household gods were genies in the bottle you pulled out. You needed rain, you you gave extra attention to that god. You needed food, you gave extra attention to that God. You needed a good spouse, you needed those things, you gave extra attention to that God. It was about bribing the right God to get good things in this life. And sad to say, many charlatan preachers in Christendom make God a genie in the bottle that you pull out. If you do the right things for God, then God will give you a nicer house and better income. And they miss the fact that this life is about being connected to Christ. They miss the fact that we are zombies in God's eyes. We are the walking dead and we stink of the sewer of our sin. Everything we do offends God. But He sent a messenger into your life who told you about the true life. And the Holy Spirit came and gave you life. In fact, at the end of our verse, the apostles say, we on our parts are witnesses of these events and also the Holy Spirit whom God gave to those who keep on obeying him. Our sinful nature reads this and it says, if you obey God, then God will give you the Holy Spirit. It's very interesting. This is why this is why it's very important to be able to analyze the original inspired language. He says it in the past tense as an accomplished historical fact whom the Holy Spirit gave And then he uses the durative tense to those who keep on obeying him. In other words, God gave the Holy Spirit and then you keep on obeying him. And if you want to know if you have faith, then you look at that continued obedience. And all of the law is summarized by the obedience. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. The great obedience we give is when we actually trust 100 percent in God as our savior. So the new life begins. We get that message that God did what we cannot do. We're stuck in our sins. And He took on our human flesh. And He was righteous in our place. And then He took this punishment for our sins. We're going to get into that here in a minute. And He rose victorious. And the Holy Spirit works through that message and He gives you faith. Now the New Testament often talks about obedience of faith. Because the good news of salvation in Christ, the gospel makes one demand. It demands that you believe it. And unlike the law that makes ten demands, but never empowers you to keep it, the gospel supplies that demand of faith by giving you the Holy Spirit. So this life that the angel's talking about is the fact that the Holy Spirit gives birth to your new man who is connected with Christ and you are no longer a zombie. You are alive now. And yes, we can take our problems to the Lord. He's not a genie in a bottle that we can pull out and be like, Oh Lord, I need to win the lottery today. Come on, big Jesus. No, that's not what it is. It's life. 
that He actually will allow hardships to come upon us because we're alive in Him to keep us alive in Him. Because many of us have to admit, if we were to win the lottery, we would lose our faith. Suddenly that money would become our God. God allows crosses and He allows the good things that He does because He's ruling to keep us in that faith. And so this life ultimately culminates in the new heavens and the new earth and a glorified body, but it's about being alive in Christ now. When they heard this, they went into the temple around daybreak and they began teaching. They were bold. Once again, this temple was meant to point to the Lamb of God who is with us, who takes away our sin. But we're told in the second half, verse 21, after the high priest and those with him arrived, they called a meeting of the Sanhedrin and all the council of the elders of the sons of Israel, and they sent word to the jail for them to be brought. Yet when the underlings arrived, they did not find them in prison, and they returned and reported it by saying, We found the jail had been locked up in all security and the guards had stood on their ground over the doors. Yet after we opened the doors, we found no one inside. After the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, they were puzzled about them as to what could have happened. I'm a big fan of a few prison movies, brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes the guy disappears and they scratch their head and you get to figure out the elaborate plot of how he disguised himself and got out or, or you find the poster that's covered up the huge hole or you find where the warden had one time dropped a, 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 a coin or something out of his pocket and the guy was finally able to, to shape that into a key and spring the lock. The thing that's ironic, brothers and sisters in Christ, is everything's in place. There's no hole. There's no sprung key. The guards were there. How could this happen? Now, the Sadducees were one of the two main religious denominations of the Jews. They were the two that were in control. There were others that the Bible mentions, like the Essenes, and we know of like the Qumran community. But the Sadducees, they were modern. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection. There are liberal Christians today who think they're so clever because science, they think, has disproved the Bible because miracles can't happen. People 2,000 years ago already had that. That's the Sadducees. That's unbelief. Now they're faced square with a couple of things. The disciples have been doing miracles to confirm the message, and they get jealous of it. They tried to hide the resurrection of the Lord, even posted a guard, and they have to admit that he rose, and now these guys seem to have apparated out of a cell. Once again, faced with yet another miracle of the Lord that is screaming out, I am God and it's about this Savior. They refuse to believe because of their hatred for God. So what happens? Then someone showed up and reported to them, Look, the men who you put in prison have taken a stand in the temple and are teaching the people. When? When do they do the simple and obvious thing and finally say, We've been trying to silence this. He's risen. Let's trust in him. But they won't. They'll continue to deny it no matter what. And you and I get to see the folly of it like those comedies where you finally say, just confess the truth. But they just dig themselves in deeper. So we're told then the captain together with the underlings were bringing them without force because they were afraid that the people would stone them. Then they brought them and stood among and had them stand among the Sanhedrin. The high priest questioned them by saying, didn't we strictly order you to not continue teaching on the basis of this name? Stop and think about that, brothers and sisters in Christ. He doesn't say, stop teaching about this Jesus. Stop teaching about the Messiah. He won't even say that on the basis of this name. Now, you and I know that God's name is what God reveals to us about everything he does for us 
to give us that new life. The name Jesus from the Hebrew Yahshua, which means Savior. He's the one who saves us. Christ and Messiah, both same words mean anointed. He's the one, not you and I, who was anointed to save us and remove our sins. He's upset because they're teaching on the basis of Jesus' name. They're keeping the commandments. Why, think of the second commandment. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. If we were to treat that name with contempt, it's something we can put away until it's convenient for us. We're guilty of being just as big an unbeliever as the Sanhedrin. But when we know Jesus is our Savior, we long to confess our sins and hear the good news that they've been removed. In fact, that's even what the disciples ultimately say. Peter and the apostles respond, it's necessary to keep on obeying God rather than men. The God of our fathers rose Jesus, whom you arrested and killed by hanging upon. And the Greek actually is timber. See, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, Moses had recorded, cursed is anyone who's hung from a tree. Not just crucified, hung from a tree. That's important because Jesus, who is righteousness, Jesus, who is perfectly righteous and holy, he took on our curse. He took on the curse of our sin and bore it, even being abandoned by God on the cross to bear that so that you and I would not be cursed by God. Instead, we're blessed and we're credited with that righteousness. And we're told God exalted this same man to his right hand as prince and savior in order to give repentance to Israel and release of sin. Jesus is true son of God. He's prince. He's ruling over all creation as your savior. To give you that, and that word repentance, that's that Greek verb metanomoio, it means a change of mind. It goes right back to suddenly we, we are sinful and we've just got a sinful nature, but Jesus rules to bring you the good news of him as your savior and he sends the Holy Spirit through that message and he gives birth to that new man and now you have a whole different view of things. You have a sinful nature that wants you to sin, but you have a new man. He says, no, I've been forgiven. And when I do sin, it's a loving God that I sin against. So it's not a repentance that's just, I don't want to be punished because I screwed up. It's a repentance that comes out of love for God who's already saved us. And it thinks differently. When Luther discovered the gospel, his adversary said, you've made forgiveness free. People will say, Jesus already died for my sins, so I might as well go out and sin. But see, when you got the Holy Spirit, you don't think that way. Your sinful nature still does, but your new man doesn't. And your new man, when the sinful nature does get one in under the radar, and each one of us have our weaknesses where the sinful nature gets them under the radar, we know our sins are forgiven. And we're happy that we at least struggled with them and that they even bothered us. And that brings glory to God because we trust they're forgiven. So we have that new life. And the word for forgiveness is release of sin. Every sin is a ball and chain on our ankle dragging us straight to hell. But Christ's cross is the sledgehammer that breaks that ball and chain and sets our sin away. It's removed as Christ pours his blood upon us as we receive that faith he's giving us. They gave strict orders, but the apostles aren't going to obey. And then, in fact, in verse 28, and the high priest would be Caiaphas, continues, and in spite of that, look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you continue being determined to bring upon us this man's blood. Isn't it the irony? When Pilate washes his hands and says, I don't find any basis for a charge. I'm innocent of this man's blood. In the Sanhedrin, the people who are ordering them not to preach about the resurrection, they get the crowd to shout, let his blood be upon us and on our children. And now here we are better than 50 days later. They're going, you're determined to put his blood upon us. Now you and I know that they, they plotted the murder, but Christ gave his life for our sins. 
Here we see over and over again like that comedy, they're trying to silence that good news that Jesus is risen. But we see God working because he wants you to know that message can't be silenced. And so he calls on us. We're here to hear that message and and hear our sins have been released and we grow in the word. And when he calls on us and gives us the opportunity, sometimes with a gentle whisper, we tell our neighbor, you need Christ in your life. And other times we shout it from the rooftops. He is risen as God presents the opportunity. We're never quiet, though, because he is risen. And while the Sanhedrin themselves tried to silence it, while later the Roman government would try to silence it, while later the largest church in Christendom would try to silence it and turn it into a work righteousness message, it cannot be silenced. And we rejoice to know he's risen. That's a message that cannot be silenced. Amen. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.